Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and how it informs our lives today. I'm your local mythologist, Catherine Savela. I live here in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. I hope that you all had a good solstice on Thursday and found a way to make some mythic magic on the longest day of the year. It certainly doesn't feel like it here in the Mojave, but winter is now on its way, and we have entered the half of the year devoted to harvest. This is the time of the birds and the bees, and it is an auspicious time to wrap up our little exploration of the myth of Psyche and Eros. The full moon tomorrow, Sunday the 23rd, is known as the honey moon. So called because the beehives this time of year are full of honey. In many ancient traditions, the Celtics, for example, people used fermented honey to make a drink called mead, which was thought to be an aphrodisiac. This was a time where love and mating and marriage were on the agenda of many folks. And lots of people got married this time of year back then, just like they do now. We can trace our concept of the honeymoon, enjoyed by newly inspired lovers and newlyweds, back to these pagan roots. Today I want to walk back through the story of Psyche and Eros that I told in the last two weeks and talk a little bit about what this story might mean. If you missed those shows and you haven't heard the story before, don't worry about it. We're going to plunge into this together, and I'm going to tell the story in a somewhat shortened form and stop as I go along to unpack some of the symbology. The story begins with Psyche, who is an extraordinarily beautiful young woman, so beautiful that she attracts adoration and attention from people and makes the goddess Aphrodite very jealous. Aphrodite decides to send her son Eros, the god of love and longing, to avenge her. And Eros will do this by shooting Psyche with one of his arrows and making her fall in love with the vilest man possible. Eros, as the young son of the love goddess Aphrodite, is also known to us as Cupid. So you recognize that these arrows uh, compel one to either fall in love or hate with whoever you see next. Now in the meantime, uh, although Psyche is very beautiful, she hasn't gotten married. So her parents go and consult the Oracle of Apollo, which tells them that she will not have a mortal husband and that she has to be left alone on a mountaintop to meet her supposedly supernatural husband. Everyone expects this to be a monster, including Psyche. But Eros goes to the mountaintop. He sees her. She's so beautiful that he accidentally pricks himself on one of his arrows, and he becomes her loving husband. The two of them live a carefree, blissful life in a beautiful valley, in a magical palace, 
and everything is grand except that Psyche is not allowed to see her husband. Eros only comes to her in the darkness of night. And even though he's loving and they're very passionate together, she never is allowed to see him. Now, we see from this that Psyche's beauty is a gift that must be refined with the aid of archetypal forces. It's that big. And this is actually true of all of us. James Hillman wrote the book, The Soul's Code, about this, about the fact that the things that make us unique, that are really our unique and special gifts or contributions, often are larger than our human conditions and engage us with, you know, psychic forces. Anyway, um, the prophecy about Psyche also now has come true because Eros is a monster in his insistence that his wife stay in the dark. But at the same time, he's also the glorious God of love, divinely capable of making her happy. Well, so Psyche goes along with this arrangement for a while, and then she gets pregnant. This is symbolic, the birth of something new. And her longing to share her good fortune with her family intensifies. Eros very reluctantly agrees to arrange a visit with Psyche's sisters, and they come and they fan the embers of doubt that are already smoldering in Psyche's mind about the true identity of her husband. So Psyche disobeys Eros, she lights a lamp while he is sleeping, and she gets a look at him. He is so beautiful that she falls deeper in love pricking herself on an arrow. But when a drop of hot oil falls on his shoulder, he wakes up and, seeing what she's done, immediately leaves in a flurry of disappointment and anger at her betrayal. Psyche is left alone. The palace, the garden, and her husband are all gone. Everything disappears. Well, this has to happen because they are living in a mythological Eden. They're carefree, it's beautiful, and it's all very innocent. But because it's Eden, it has to end. They have to lose their innocence. They have to fall. Psyche brings light, that is consciousness, to the darkness of their union. When she does this, her beloved is revealed to her in a new way. She falls more in love. But with consciousness, there is always separation. We have to know separation in order to know union. And with the light, of course, comes shadow. This is the way in nature and psychologically. Now there can be more joy, but there is also sorrow. And there are choices. I think this is a really important understanding. Because adults who continue to insist that life must always be easy and happy and who refuse to see the shadow sides of their character and life are psychologically stunted and they're dangerous. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people like this in the world today who cling to their innocent view of themselves and a childish image of goodness. 
we must evolve our consciousness. And the price of our necessary deepening is always our innocence. Now Psyche wanders day and night in search of her husband until she stumbles upon a temple to Demeter. She cleans up the temple and Demeter appears to her and tells her to just go directly to Aphrodite and throw herself on the goddess's mercy. This is very risky, but Psyche does this and she goes to the offended goddess. And the Greeks believed that uh, whatever, whatever created the wound also contained the cure. So there's a homeopathic principle at work here in her going back to Aphrodite, who is the goddess who's put this whole thing in motion. Aphrodite accuses Psyche of being a bad wife because she can't do any real work. And now the real tests of our heroine began. The goddess of love gives Psyche a series of four tasks to complete. Now, why is Aphrodite behaving this way? Jealousy, anger, and revenge don't really fit our customary notion of a goddess. But the problem here is with our concept, because there's that innocence again, not with Aphrodite. Beauty is no trivial thing. And the defense of what is genuinely beautiful, this is the principle of Aphrodite, must be powerful and unrelenting. But there's more here. The story tells us from the start that Psyche is a mortal embodiment of the goddess herself. So she is an apprentice in love and to love. Aphrodite must test her in order for Psyche to fully become what she is. And this means, oddly enough, developing her inner man, the doer, as opposed to the feeler aspect of her being. She'll become more complete in herself. How is this signified in the story? Through what happens with the tasks. The first task is to sort a huge pile of various seeds. Psyche weeps, ants appear, and they complete the task for her. The seeds represent potential. Every gardener knows this. And the task represents the ability to discriminate and sort through possibilities. We see that one must be methodical, humble, and patiently create order from chaos. Ants are like this. They are also subterranean children of the earth that live in intricate communities working together. So we have the earth element here, and we have the methodical power of the small but mighty. And we have the important, the important skill of discrimination, of choosing among multiple possibilities. The second task is to gather some of the golden fleece from the fierce rams of the sun. Now again, this seems impossible. Psyche weeps, and this time a whistling reed tells her what to do. Wait until the sun goes down. That is, wait until the right time, and gather the fleece from the bushes, not directly off the rams. In other words, be strategic. Don't approach the job head on, 
you'll just butt heads with the rams, right? And here we have the water element, because the supple reed grows from the water. So the lesson of the reed is strategic and flexibility and the need to follow the rhythms, to follow the rhythms in yourself and to follow the rhythms in the situation. Now, at this point, you may be wondering what kind of heroine we've got here because she weeps and then she gets help. But weeping can be an important activity. Weeping is surrendering to the situation. And what's happening here when she cries is that she is giving herself over to the situation in a way that invites in them assistance from others. So this isn't a weakness the way that we often think about weeping. The third task is to collect a crystal flask full of water from the river of life, that is the river Styx, which flows from a rocky crag guarded by fire-breathing dragons and beyond the reach of mortals. Psyche despairs of completing this, and Zeus sends an eagle to help her. The great water of life is so powerful that we can only handle a flask full, and it's guarded. The dragons have a deep, ancient wisdom. They are figures of the unconscious. But the eagle, which represents spiritual aspiration, can swoop in and from its higher, larger, broader perspective, come down and grasp what is most significant. So with each task, Psyche has learned something new. What she has learned is discrimination, the importance of patient industry to create order, uh, a sense of strategy, the use of power without aggression, following the proper rhythm of things, and the power of spiritual intuition, perspective, and the ability to seize what is important. So through these three tasks, she has approached the masculine with an aspect of the masculine. Now remember, I'm talking about are the archetypes of masculine and feminine. I'm not talking about actual men and women. And because, of course, each of us has both the masculine and the feminine in us. So we have these capacities, but they are developed at different levels. And that's what this story is about. So three tasks have been done, but Psyche has not actually performed any of the tasks herself yet. Three tasks is typical in a story like this. In fairy tales, many things happen in threes. And this isn't exactly a fairy tale, but you can see how later fairy tales were very much modeled on this type of a myth. So three tasks is typical, but here we have four. And four is the symbol for wholeness. To complete the fourth task, Psyche will approach the deep feminine. And her fourth and final task is to descend into the underworld to ask the goddess Persephone for a box full of her beauty and to bring it back to Aphrodite. Persephone is the 
goddess of the underworld. She is the queen down there. And that's why I say this task involves approaching the deep feminine. No mortal goes to the underworld and returns. In total despair, Psyche climbs to the top of a nearby tower and gets ready to jump. She's simply going to kill herself at this point rather than try and complete the job. And that is one way to get down to the underworld. But just then, the tower speaks to her. The tower is a human-made object. It's a symbol of human culture. So with the earlier tasks, she was getting assistance from fundamental elements of air and water and earth. Now she's getting assistance from human culture. In the Tarot deck, the tower represents going through a sudden change, undergoing a crisis, having a revelation, etc. All of these interpretations are relevant to this moment in the story. The voice of the tower tells Psyche how to make the underworld journey. She has to take cakes to feed the three-headed dog Cerebrus, and she has to take coins to pay Chiron, the ferryman, because these two guard the way in. Then the tower gives her three pieces of very interesting advice. First, it tells her, ignore all of the pitiful and interesting people that you meet along the way. Two, it tells her, when you get to Persephone, don't accept the good food or the soft chair that she will offer you. And three, when you get that box of beauty, don't open it. The significance of that second piece of advice, don't accept the hospitality of Persephone, makes sense. Because we don't want to get too comfortable down there or partake of the riches of the underworld if you want to return back to this plane. As for the admonition to not open the box, if this reminds you of Pandora, then that's good. (laughs) We recognize the temptation that's being seeded here, and we're going to return to that later. But why must Psyche ignore the desperate and strange folks that she encounters in the underworld. When she's on the ferry, for example, she floats past a drowning man, and it really pains her, but she doesn't reach a hand out to help him. Well, the answer is that Psyche is naturally compassionate, even self-sacrificing. That's part of the feminine. But until you can say no to your particular susceptibilities, you cannot determine your life's course. (coughs) You have to be able to do something different. She has to resist following her usual impulse to accomplish her goal. She has to stay focused. Psyche follows the advice of the tower. She goes down. She uses the cakes and the coins. She meets Persephone. She gets the box of beauty, and she makes it back up to the top. So she does really well until she gets back into the sunlight with the box of beauty. Then she allows herself to fantasize about a reunion with Eros. She feels the love for him that has sustained her through all of the trials of these tests. And she thinks about how Eros fell in love with her because 
she was beautiful. But at that moment, after all of her wandering, she is just a very dirty, tired, pregnant woman. And she thinks to herself, wow, this, I am going to reunite myself with my husband, a man that I want to entice back to me, and I must look awful. So here the moment of temptation comes in. She's contemplating her situation, and she has this box, this box that contains the beauty of the goddess. Psyche does what I think all of us would do in her situation. She opens the box, and a mist rises up from the emptiness and puts her into a death-like sleep in the middle of the road. Now, maybe you're wondering when this woman is ever going to learn how to follow directions. Though, as I say, I think what she does is a pretty universally human impulse. In any event, first she's lit the lamp, and now she opens the box. Now, we know that the lamp, the bringing of light to her situation, is a desire for consciousness and real intimacy. That was actually a gift. But what about the box? In opening the box, Psyche acts out of her soul's desire, her longing for arrows, and she is put to sleep. When we follow our deepest desires, things do not always go as expected. But they do work out. In this kind of situation, we often discover that we need someone else to transform. In this instance, the masculine and the feminine need each other's energy to complete the task. They both have to evolve. Psyche has to fall asleep and Eros must wake her up because Psyche woke Eros earlier in the story. Remember the burning oil? and initiated his transformation. At the beginning of the story, he was narcissistic and predatory, and he was perfectly happy to just stay in the darkness. But then he got burned. He was wounded physically and psychically by her seeming betrayal. But that was the gateway to a new maturity for him. In the course of the story, we've been following Psycho as Psyche as she completes her various tasks. But Eros has been transformed at the same time that she has been going through her ordeals. He used to be this child who ran home to his mom and who hid things from his mom. Remember, he didn't tell Aphrodite that he had actually fallen in love with, er- with uh, Psyche rather than pricking her with an, an arrow and making her fall in love with somebody horrible. He felt betrayed because Psyche actually looked at him. And it didn't matter when she looked at him that she actually consciously loved him. But now we see a very different Eros who has left his mother's house, i.e. been freed from his mother's complex, and gone off to look for his wife. He comes to her side, wipes the death-like sleep off of her, and then goes to Olympus and tells the gods, I need to be with this woman forever. You should make this possible. And they agree to do this. 
when Eros makes this announcement in front of all the gods and goddesses, he's claiming a conscious relationship as the kind of relationship that he wants. So both of them have come to a new, deeper level as individuals. And now we return back to the nature of their relationship, what is between them, the third thing, the marriage. Well, that is changed too, because Psyche's made immortal and married to Eros on Mount Olympus. The conscious conscious relationship between soul and love, masculine and feminine, is the highest aspiration. It is individuation or self-realization. And the final outcome is symbolized by the daughter born to this couple named Pleasure. I hope that you've enjoyed this story and delving into its symbology a bit with me. I think it's a really lovely one and it is a pattern for many later fairy tales that are also meditations on this delicate and important, crucially important balance between the masculine and the feminine inside that then transforms the relationship between the masculine and the feminine in the outer world. If you'd like to look into this story a little bit more on your own, there are a couple of resources that I would suggest. Uh, First of all, this story is part of Apuleius's book, The Transformations of Lucius, which is also known as The Golden Ass. And this is a old Roman book. And I know that probably sounds dry to you, but it's actually uh, very entertaining. And for a good exploration of the development of masculine and feminine in the story, along the lines of what I've been doing here, you can check out Amor, A-M-O-R, and Psyche by Eric Newman. Eric, spelled E-R-I-C-H, Newman, N-E-U-M-A-N-N. Now, next week, we're going to shift gears a little bit and listen to an old Persian story that involves a recalcitrant pair of slippers. Yep, slippers. But this is not a variation on Cinderella. It is, however, a funny story that is worth pondering, so don't miss it. That's it for me today, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, you can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook or feel free to email me at mythicmojo at gmail.com. Also, consider yourself invited to the High Desert Mythological Roundtable, which will meet Tuesday, June 25th from 7 to 9 p.m. at the new Radio Free Joshua Tree Listening Lounge. The Listening Lounge is located on Highway 62 in what was the Red Arrow Gallery space. And before that, the Beatnik, the cultural heart of Joshua Tree, in my opinion. We're currently reading and telling a fantastic Greek myth The Odyssey, which is an epic poem written by Homer uh, way, way, way back in the 8th century BCE. The Odyssey is about the adventures and hard wanderings of Odysseus, who is trying to get back home to his family and kingdom in Ithaca after the Trojan War. 
It's a really interesting story, and you don't have to have any familiarity with it at all to join us. Although we've been working on this project for a while, every little bit of the story stands on its own, and coincidentally, uh, Odysseus is going to go to the underworld in the part of the story that we're going to tell uh, on Tuesday. You can find the story of Psyche and Eros and many others online at www.katherinesavela.com. And special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music, to Rags and Bones for producing this show, and most of all to you for listening. Please tune in next week, and in the meantime, happy mythmaking, and keep the mystery in your life alive. 